Living by the book is our theme this year. We hold in high esteem the Word of God. We believe it is written by the hand of God and is an infallible guide for living. So we're talking about different topics that we find in the book and trying to live by them this year. This series that we've been engaged in for quite a few weeks is called Kingdom Living. Uh, We're actually studying the Sermon on the Mount where the king explains the kingdom. It doesn't just explain the kingdom, but he explains the righteousness of the kingdom and says that we're supposed to seek both the kingdom and his righteousness. That's where we started in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Uh, We understood the first week a little bit about his kingdom and how much different it is from the worldly kingdom. And since then, we've been talking about how righteousness in the kingdom is an inside-out thing. Uh, The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Uh, We do differently than the world. We do things to please God, not to impress men. We do our righteous acts, he calls them. There is a circle of forgiveness within the kingdom. We forgive others because we've been forgiven. And we do that as we expect God to forgive us. And we tell the truth. Our yes means yes and our no means no. That's not the way it is in the world. But in the kingdom, uh, our citizens of the kingdom behave that way. Uh, We found out last week there's even a different economic system. In the kingdom, uh, where we store our treasures is different. We store up heavenly treasures, not earthly ones. Uh, I don't think I emphasized enough last week, as I thought about it later, the, the danger of material things. Uh, We talked about it a little bit, but when he's talking about where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. That should make us sit up and take notice. Uh, He's telling us that's a guide for where our heart is. And if being in the kingdom is a matter of the heart, then this is serious business. If you put your focus on earthly treasures, if that's what you're interested in and what you put all of your trust in, he says that's where your heart is. And when we get there for the entrance exam, it's not going to be a list of all the things that we've done. That's what the Pharisees are going to bring. It's going to be a heart examination. Where's your heart on all these things? And that's why we're trying to learn what kingdom living is. Uh, Today we're going to tackle a topic, sex and the disciple. Uh, It's an unfamiliar topic from the pulpit. We don't talk about it from the pulpit much. We probably expect the youth minister to cover it somehow and get get that taken care of. Uh, but we don't talk about much from the pulpit. And that's because it's a very difficult thing to do in a situation like this. Uh, we've got four generations in here. We've got 700 different people. It's a little hard to talk about this topic uh, without being either unclear so generic that nobody knows what you're talking about, or to be too clear. Uh, It's kind of like Goldilocks. It's real easy to be too hot or too cold, but it's real hard to be just right. And I don't know if I can do that or not, but we're going to try because Jesus talked about it. Jesus is the one that brought it up, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount, so since he talked about it, we need to talk about it. 
So as part of kingdom living, we'll tackle this topic. Our verse is the one that was just read for you, Matthew 5, 28. Jesus said something strange to the world's point of view, and probably to all of his audience thought it was strange. He said, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully already committed adultery in his heart. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the world's favorite verse, didn't we? Judge not. The world loves that one. Well, there are a whole lot of verses in the Bible that the world doesn't love. They ignore them. They ridicule them. They hate them. Well, this is one that gets all of that. This is one that the world just absolutely doesn't want anything to do with. In fact, not, not just this verse, uh, anything that God says about sex. The world doesn't want to hear it. But Jesus brought it up, so let's see if we can figure it out. First, let's understand just the passage that we're looking at. Very short passage. Brother Jim read it to you. To understand it, first, we've always got to go back to context. What's he talking about? He's talking about rules righteousness versus a kingdom heart. If you read the whole thing, he goes through and he says, Now, they've told you this. This is what you've heard said. But I tell you something else. And in this instance, he says, now they've told you, the Pharisees, the the religious leaders, all those righteous guys, they've told you, you can't commit adultery. That's what's wrong. The act of adultery is wrong. But I tell you, and then he goes on to say, if you look at a woman lustfully, it is adultery. Now, what's he mean there? Uh, what he's saying is, is rules righteousness versus a, king, versus a kingdom heart. In rules righteousness, as long as you don't do the act, whether it's sex or his next illustration is murder, yeah, it's wrong to murder. Yeah, it's wrong to commit adultery. But Jesus says in a kingdom heart, you understand that the problem starts way before the act. It doesn't mean the act's not wrong, but that's not where the problem is. The problem starts way before that. I mean, if you just read verse 28 all by itself, you got to go join a monastery. That's kind of a scary verse. But if we put it in context, rules righteousness versus kingdom heart, I think we can start to get it. Now, the other thing we've got to understand is, is the, really the key to getting this is the word lust. And it means a desire. The Greek word means desire. But the way it's used, it's got a problem attached to that desire. The way I tried to explain it was... It's a desire where you objectify something for your own gratification. Okay? Now, kind of hard to explain this, but let's see if we can. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Uh, Let's say you have a very nice watch. And I look at it. Or let's say for women, you look and another woman's got a very nice, beautiful necklace. Okay? You look at that and you say, I like that. That's cool. That uh, that appeals to me. Uh, I'm attracted to that. I desire that. 
We all got different desires. Different things uh, appeal to us and all that. So maybe I see, I see a lot of watches that I think, why would anybody wear that? That's ugly. But sometimes I see a watch and I think, that's a good looking watch. And I'm sure you women are the same with necklaces. Yeah, man, that's a pretty necklace. Okay. That's a desire, but, and it can end there, but it can also escalate. If I keep looking at that watch, every time I see you, I take take a glance at that watch, the second and the third and the fourth time, and at some point I begin to think, I'd like to have that watch. I want that. Yeah, I want and like that. I would like that for me. That would gratify me if I had that good looking watch. Yeah. Now, look at the definition here. It's a desire of something, an object for your own gratification. Okay, that's lust of the eyes is what we've been talking about. Watches and necklaces and all that are lust of the eyes. Now, instead of a watch or a necklace, let's see if we can substitute in there a woman or a man. The first look, we say, she's attractive. He's appealing. Okay. That's okay. That's human. That's the way we operate as humans. That's the way he created us. But if we do that second look, third look, fourth look, I want that. I want that for me. Okay. We would call that lust of the flesh. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, not only is it a little bit different when we substitute humans for watches, it adds a problem. You say, a watch is one thing, a necklace is something, okay, big deal. We objectify that. They're already objects. But when we do it with a man or a woman, that's a human person. That is a soul. That is somebody made in the image of God. And if we objectify them for our own gratification, we demean them, we violate them. The key is for our own gratification. And that's where Jesus says the problem is. He says if you look lustfully, if you desire, if you objectify that person for your own gratification, it doesn't matter if you end up committing the act or not. That's the problem. In kingdom living, that's the heart problem. Okay? A first look, a first notice, a first notice that someone is attractive or appealing, that's human. We can't avoid that unless we lock ourselves away in a monastery and we can still do it there. In our imagination. Okay? But... If the first look is okay, it's, it's somewhere in that second or third or fourth look, somewhere along, it becomes lust. Maybe C.S. Lewis's quote from his book, The Four Loves, will help you understand what I'm talking about here. He said, we use a most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. How much he cares about the woman as such 
may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after fruition. Okay? Let that help you understand what Jesus is talking about here? The word lust is the the key to, to understanding this. Now, I'm going to take just a moment and venture into territory that I'm not much of an expert on, but I do want to point out to you that men and women are different. I mean, I understand the basics that they're different, but explaining this to you is a little difficult. But I fear that just because Jesus addressed this to men, instead of a man looks lustfully at a woman, that half the audience may be saying, well, this doesn't apply to me. Well, I believe it can apply to women. Now, in general, and generally speaking, men are more visually oriented and more generous and visually motivated. But I don't think that means women can't lust to objectify someone for their own gratification is our distinction. Now, I can't explain it very well, but let me see if this helps. We're going to play a little word association game. I'm going to say somebody's name, and you tell me what pops into your head. Okay, here we go. Hugh Jackman. Okay, those of you that know him, and the ones that popped into your head was Wolverine, I'm guessing are almost all men. Those of you, when I said that and it popped into your head, Jean Valjean, I bet are almost all women. Just a guess. Now, the reason I think that is because men and women are different. And I admit there might be a few women who lust after the Wolverine's abs. But more likely... When I said Hugh Jackman and Hugh and Val, John Valjean popped into your head, you women were thinking, oh, Jean Valjean, he is, he's a sensitive guy. You know, uh, he's kind to everybody. And he took care of poor little Fontaine so well, and he, he sings so sincerely. What would it be like to have a husband like that? Okay, I can't explain it any better than that. I think that can happen. And that's lust. That's objectifying someone for your own gratification. Men and women are different. We, we think differently and all that, but I don't think this can be applied strictly to men. All right, so the, there's the context, the word. Now, finally, he gets our attention with this pluck out an eye and cut off a hand. What has this got to do with anything? Okay. Once again, you take this <laughs> strictly literally, you do some weird things. And people have done that in the past. And people made themselves eunuchs because of what Jesus said here. It's not what he meant. Okay. I put on your handout a couple of words. One was hyperbole. I think that's part of what he's doing here. He's exaggerating. He's making it so exaggerated that we have to think, What's he really talking about here? And the other thing I put down there is absurdity. That's a technique of reducing something to absurdity so people get the point. And I think he's doing both of those here. He's saying if it's an outward problem, 
If your problem is looking at women, if your problem is touching women, well then pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. And logically we think through that and think, hold it. That wouldn't help anything. That wouldn't cure the problem. You know, I got another eye. I got an imagination. I got another hand. I, I got, that wouldn't fix it. One author said, God doesn't intend for us to roll into heaven a bloody stump. <laughs> That's not what he's saying here. Just keep cutting stuff off that causes problems. That's the point. Cutting it off wouldn't help. Wouldn't fix it. If that would fix it, that'd be better than going to hell. But that didn't fix it. It's a heart problem. Okay, that's the passage. Now, I think we understand that well enough to operate with it. But let's expand this because there's a whole lot of other teaching in the Bible about sex. There's a bigger picture, I think, of sex. I called it sex and the disciple. Because there's no more stark difference between the world and the kingdom than in this topic these days. So let's just talk about it in general a little bit and see if it helps. Uh, the world has one concept. The kingdom has another. Let's talk about the kingdom. First and most basic, sex is God's idea. We need to understand that. Okay? Some people read what Jesus said here and react by saying all sex is evil and let's just stay away from it and let's go to monasteries and convents and we won't have a problem and all that. No, sex is God's idea. In Genesis chapter 2, he says, for marriage, a man and a woman leave their families, they cleave to each other, and they become one flesh. That's what I designed it for. This is the way marriage works. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says, the marriage bed, what happens in the marriage bed is honorable. It's undefiled. It's a sacred thing. God dreamed this thing up. Made it part of us. Okay. Second, God's rules are for our good. Now the world hates all these rules. They say God just doesn't want us to have any fun. John 10.10 10, said, so Jesus said, I came that they might have life, eternal life, and have it more abundantly. Have a better life. I want their life on earth to be better. And if they follow my rules, that's what they'll have is a better life. Now, if you're young and ignorant, you just got to trust me on this. It's kind of like your parents say, because I said so. Well, God says these rules are good for you. At some point, these rules seem confining, especially when we listen to the world. But as you get older and you get wiser, if you'll check the facts... If you'll just look at the world, you'll find out that these things are for our good. Now, and I don't mean look at what the world claims, but look at what is in the world. Here's an example. Cohabitation, we call it. Living together, shacking up, we used to call it. Okay? The world says that's the way to operate. The world says that's only logical. You've got to do that so you'll know if you're... Uh, 
whatever the word is, fit to be married, if, you, if you've got suited to be married, that's a good word, uh, it prepares you for marriage. It's a good idea. So cohabit. Now, that's what the world says. But if you look and you check the statistics and you ask some questions, you find out, now it differs depending on how long people live together and all of that, but all of the studies show that people that live together before marriage, as opposed to those who don't live together before marriage, are at the very least 40% more likely to get divorced, and at the most 85% more likely to get divorced. Okay? So the world looks at this, and it says, here's says a rule that I can't have sex before marriage. That doesn't make sense to me. I think it's a good idea to have sex before marriage. Okay, gives you 85% more chance of getting divorced. Is that a good idea? Why did he make these rules for our own good? He knows how everything operates. He knows how our minds and our hearts and our emotions and our sex and everything operates. And he says, here's the rules. This will be better for you. Third, the world has perverted the concept of sex. Now, I argued with myself whether to use that word or not because I don't want you to get the idea that I just mean sick, disgusting, perverted things. There's a lot of that in the world, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about they've taken God's concept and twisted it. They've taken God's concept and changed it. The old illustration of the clothing store where the thieves break in one night and before they leave, they change all the price tags. You know, so socks are a couple of hundred dollars and suits are 69 cents and it messes the whole system up. Well, that's what Satan does. God says there are certain values on things. God says sex is very, very valuable in marriage and it's very, very harmful out of marriage. The world just switches the price tags. And the world says sex is good anytime. Any place, anybody, about the only rule the world still goes to by a little bit is consensual. It's got to be consensual. And that'll go away here pretty soon. But other than that, sex is good. Any place, any time, any way, any condition, that doesn't have anything to do with anything else. Now, Romans 1 says this is the way it goes no matter what. Now, we're not going to take time to read it all, but you read Romans 1, and what it describes is when people first turn away from God. When humans turn away from God and stop honoring Him, what happens is one of the first things is they go to sexual impurity. They decide to violate God's rules on this. That's because sex is such a strong thing, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But that's where they go first. Sexual impurity, verse 24. Then verse 28, then they go to shameful lusts. Things that are unnatural. Not just regular sex. They go to shameful things that are unnatural and wrong. And then they go to a completely depraved mind where anything goes. Paul said that's the way it works. Once you turn away from God, here's where you go. 
Okay? That's why the world has changed the concept of sex. Because they, they've turned away from God. It's just the way it works. Okay? Fourth, sexual sin is unique. Now, let me just read you the passage. Tell you what I'm saying here. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Okay. Paul says all other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not his own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Okay? Now, I don't have time, nor could I probably, explain exactly what this means. All I can tell you is sexual sin is unique. There's something different about it. There's something different for the human Mentally and emotionally and everything else, when we sin sexually, it does something to us that other sins don't do. And I think that's one reason that Jesus and God said, this is the one thing I'll allow divorce for. Sexual sin is so destructive, is so harmful to a relationship and to a couple emotionally and mentally and all that that I'll allow divorce for that. That's how significant it is. There's something unique about it, something different. Okay, fifth, sexual desire is powerful. We usually, when you're in a psychology class or socialism, social studies class or something, people say the strongest human instinct the first human instinct is self-preservation. Okay. Well, it may be, but I think maybe <laughs> sex might be number one. And I realize that's preservation of the species and all that, but I, I think in another way it might be. And I put down, it's powerful in two ways. Look at those. It's powerful in two ways. First of all, as a desire. Sexual desire is, is a powerful thing. God designed it that way. Okay? I may desire your watch, but, you know, there's limits on what I'll do to get your watch. Okay? Sexual desire is so strong that there's really no limits to a human. It does crazy things to people. Okay? It, I was trying to think of an illustration, and I thought about nuclear fuel. You got nuclear fuel somehow, and we put it in a special container. We put it underwater, and we put it underground, and we do all these things, and we tell people, don't mess with that unless it's in the proper environment. If you get it in the right environment, and you got the right situation and the right, all of that, then it can do good things. But don't let it out, <laughs> out of the right environment. Now, the desire is so powerful, and I can't explain it all to you. We don't have time, but go get the tapes from Jerry and Lynn Jones' seminar on marriage. Listen to them describe pornography. Listen to them describe affairs and how they work, and the physical and the chemical and the emotional mess that sexual desire causes, and you'll say, whoa, 
That's a, that's a strong desire. It needs to be kept in the right place. The second way it's powerful is as a destructive force. Now, it's also a constructive force. I realize that in the right environment, it does good. It, it improves. It's a force to enrich a marriage. It holds a marriage together in a lot of ways. It's a constructive thing in the right place. But it's a destructive thing in the wrong place. Look at the news tomorrow. I don't know who it's going to be, but there will be somebody in there in this world that destroys their career or their income or their marriage or their reputation for sex. It's in there every day. It may very well be the number one most powerful instinct, and it's destructive in the wrong place. Okay, so those are some things about sex and disciple. Now, in 2013, this year, right now, we've got this problem that Jesus talked about and the problem of sex and the disciple, all of that. We've got it magnified a thousand times, a million times. I don't know how many times. The world's gone nuts on this. We're way down, Romans 1. We're making our way to the bottom real quickly in America. Do you understand when Jesus said this? When God laid down his rules about sex and looking at people lustfully and all of that. When he said that, there was no TV pushing immorality. There were no PG-13s or R's or anything else. There was no dirty music. There was no celebration of breaking every rule God ever made. There was no internet where anybody can get on and with a click of the button get every kind of flesh and perversion and filth and profanity like that. When Jesus told people this, everybody that walked around was covered up. There weren't people at school and at work and at church half undressed. We got this problem magnified a thousand times. And we got to apply it. We're in the kingdom. We got to live differently than the world wants us to. And this is a hard one. It's hard in this society, and there's more coming. It's not going to get any better. We got to apply this somehow. So let's talk about it a little bit. Application could be never ending. I could spend the rest of the week giving you rules and guidelines and good ideas and all that, but parents, that's your job. Parents, you're supposed to tell your kids, here's the rules, here's the guidelines, here's the boundaries. That's your job in this world. I know it's hard because they're getting completely opposite information all the time. Getting bombarded with it. Kids need boundaries. I, and I wasn't going to go over here and tell your parents what to do. But let me just say this. Kids need boundaries. And specific boundaries. I don't think it's just the talk anymore. I think it's a whole bunch of talks. All the time. 
Because the world is pouring in so much filth that says the, the opposite. The wrong thing is acceptable. And the wrong things to be celebrated. And the wrong things cool. we got a huge job here to apply this. Kids need specific boundaries. Uh, I read about one parents that told their daughter, we're going to tell you where a boy can touch you. A boy can touch you on the back between the neckline and the waistline. If he has to help you up a pair of stairs or something or help you in the door, he can touch you on the back. Other than that, nowhere. You say, well, that seems a little strict. Well, draw your own boundaries then. But I guarantee you that'll work. Now, I'm not telling you kids won't ever break that boundary, but when they do, they know they've broken it. They've got a boundary that's in their head, and they know this is wrong, this is right. That's parents' jobs to tell them that kind of thing. There's a lot of parents that hadn't done that. I'm out in public a lot of times, and I'll see this young couple come walking in, and there's a little girl and this scraggly-looking boy, and he's running his hands all over her body. I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it someday. I am so tempted to go over to that kid and say, do you have any idea how lucky you are that I am not her daddy? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's amazing what you see out in public. Parents, do your job. Apply this. Give kids boundaries. I will say this about applying it. Since Jesus said, look, that's where he started this verse. When a man looks, I'd say a couple of real key things are, number one, women, you need to be careful what you show. Girls got to be careful how you dress because you contribute to this. This is partly your job in the kingdom. And the book says that. Dress modestly. Don't disrupt. Don't be a temptation. The book says that. The world laughs at that. The world says, I can't say that kind of thing, but I just did. Secondly... Women, not only women, but men, since it's about looking, be careful what you look at. Porn's number one problem these days. Job 31.1, Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. I made a covenant with my eyes. I'm promised myself I'm not going to look at the wrong things. That's what Jesus is talking about here. There's a lot of help out there. If you want to apply this, you can or you can find all kinds of book lists and whatever your specific problem is, Google it and I want help with this and you can find it. Okay, but I will share one practical thing with my triangle here. This is especially for young people because young people have been completely misinformed about what's okay. So young people always want to know How far is too far? Physical intimacy. How far can I go? How far is okay? How far is not okay? Okay. I mean, they'll say, I know all the way is wrong, but how far is okay? Okay. So right on the left of your triangle, physical intimacy. The arrow going up. Now, here's a way to think about it. On the other side of the triangle, write commitment. Spiritual, emotional commitment. 
arrow going up also. Okay, here's the concept. Physical intimacy can go up as spiritual and emotional commitment go up. Let me explain. At the bottom, it's a cinch. Bottom of the triangle, you can understand that, right? No commitment, guess what? No physical intimacy. Okay? Don't have any commitment to this person. You got no business doing anything physically intimate. Now, the world thinks that's nuts. <laughs> now the world says, no, that's when it's best. I think the term is hooking up. It's a big deal in college. That, that's cool. Let's just call somebody and have sex, or let's run into somebody in the bar and have sex. Don't even know their name, much less committed. That's cool. Okay, go to the triangle. At the bottom, it's really easy. You got no commitment, you got no physical intimacy. At the top, it's also very clear. Deadlock certain. If you're totally committed, two people have decided we want to live together, we want to be, uh, pledge our lives to each other, we want to put the other one first, we are willing to go in front of other people and totally commit ourselves to that and get married. When we've done that, what's acceptable? Total physical intimacy. That's where it's okay. Okay, Those are the two extremes. That's where I know exactly what's right. Now, in between, I can't give you a list. I can't tell you that exactly here you can hold hands or exactly here you can have a kiss or whatever because people are different. So some people... Say there's no contact and not even any dating until somebody gets married. That seems a little dangerous to me. It's a little like keeping the baby plugs in the outlets until your kid's 21. (laughs) Telling them if you want to plug your radio in, I'll plug it in for you, but you can't mess with electricity. They got to learn about something somehow. Okay. I think they need to go through the dating process somehow. But I'm not the parent of your kids, so you're in charge of that. But what I want to tell you about in between here, the two extremes, is just keep looking at this triangle and thinking, it's about commitment. That's what's key here. It's not about the number of dates. You know, That's not on the right side. It doesn't say after four dates you can have this much intimacy. That's not what it's about at all. It's about commitment. If you're on that left side and that boy is proposing some level of physical intimacy and you look over at him and say, am I committed to this kid? No. Well, why would I have physical intimacy with him? If there's no commitment, it's easy. There's no physical intimacy. It's based on commitment, not the number of dates, not how cute somebody is, not how popular somebody is, not how mushy they make you feel. That's not what it's based on. Just look over at the right side. Commitment. Am I committed to this person or not? Is he the kind of person that I'm thinking about spending the rest of my life with? I'll guarantee you. By the way, at 16, you're clueless. You don't know what any of this means. You know, you don't try to tell me about commitment because you don't know. But that makes this easy. Since you don't understand commitment, uh, you got no business with physical intimacy. 
But when you get old enough to start to understand that, then you can kind of think through this. Now, I can't tell you the exact steps in there, but I'll guarantee you it's a good principle. If you ask yourself before any physical intimacy, am I committed to this person, to this human, this soul? Is he going to make me a better person? Are we going to serve in the kingdom together? You ask that and the questions get pretty easy to answer sometimes. All right, there's my only advice. Today's topic is really no different than all of our others. I know it seems a little different because it's a kind of sensitive topic, but it comes down to the same thing, doesn't it? It's a matter of the heart. We want to make this topic all about the outward things and the list of rules and all of that, but it's not. It's about a matter of the heart. In the kingdom, there's a clear difference from what the world pushes. The world takes God's principles, changes the price tags, and says, here, do this. This is fun. In the kingdom, we look at God's principles a different way in our heart. This one, I admit, may be a more stark contrast. But that's even more reason to be striving for kingdom living in this topic. The lesson is yours. If you're there this evening or this morning and want to respond to the Lord's invitation, if you want to give your heart to Him and serve Him in the kingdom, we'd be happy to help you with that. If you have any other public need, come. Let's stand and sing.